Mark 2, Jesus is, the Pharisees are really starting to get bent out of shape at Jesus. And, you know, I mean, Jesus is about, he, he's going about, he starts out in the first part of chapter 2, and he's actually forgiving sins of all the nerve. Jesus is forgiving sins. That really, really irritates the Pharisees. He's also healing. And he's hanging out with tax preparers. <laughs> and just kind of the scum of the earth, you know. And the Pharisees are just going nuts over it. And so then towards the end of chapter 2, they're going through the grain fields and they're hungry. And so the disciples pick some heads of grain. And so the Pharisees are watching. They go, look what they're doing on the Sabbath. They're picking this grain to eat. And so basically, on verse 27, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. And so one of the things, and we're going to look at today, is how the Pharisees were so upset at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And, and I did a little bit of research, and because of time, I'm not going to go through all this, but uh, what this is, I printed off, it's 15 pages, it's the 39 categories of Sabbath work. Remember, remember when, when uh, Moses had the Ten Commandments? One of them says, keep the Sabbath holy. And so we have to, as men, we want to define things. And we want to make lists. And we want to know. So the rabbis defined work. And some of the, well, the 39 categories that are here are caring, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, Building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, <laughs> slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, marking. That's 39 categories. Now, this is brief explanations of 15 pages of what each of those categories mean. And that doesn't really go deep in the definitions. Like when it says work, well, what, you know, we're trying to define what work is. So we won't mess it up. And so what happens here is, is that they're really watching Jesus and they're hungry. And so they, they pick some grain. But that was on the Sabbath. And as the Pharisees was watching, then they said, they're working on the Sabbath. He's breaking the law. He can't be from God. And, and so Jesus looks at him and he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, when God gave that commandment, it was for us. So that if you're like me during tax season and a workaholic, we won't get into those modes. That we need a day of rest as humans. 
And that was a lot of the idea behind the law. I won't go deep into that today. But, and so when we look at the Gospels, and, and if I think if, if uh, and I just heard someone had done this and looked through briefly, didn't do exact percentages, but actually if you look at all the healings in the four Gospels, about 60% of them happen on the Sabbath. Now, I think there's a reason for that, and I'll explain that in a second. So, the Pharisees were really getting bent out of shape with Jesus. So, we come to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And this is, we're starting with verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into, a, into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Wouldn't it be horrible to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Hello. Thank you. Which is, which is lawful, to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, I don't have time this morning to explain this, but, but the Pharisees and the Herodians had nothing in common. They were completely like this, but all of a sudden they had a common cause. They want to destroy Jesus. They want to kill him. Now I think this is interesting that, that as we look at this, and two things I want to look at this morning, is the first thing, one, number one, is that grace threatens our systems. Number two, grace grieves our slavery. And so the religion of the Pharisees was totally condition-based. You kept God's law, you followed the rules, you did good, and then you're okay. But if you're weak, if you don't follow rules, if you aren't perfect, then God is going to be upset with you. Sounds a lot like the church today, doesn't it? When I say that, I point at myself. Believe me, I'm guilty in all these. And whenever I start talking about the church or us, I'm talking about me. So hopefully you don't think I'm pointing the finger at you. But if, it, if you, you know, own it, it sounds a lot like us. Because a lot of us in the church kind of believe this today. This is a lot about what this whole series is about. Because we, we believe so much that if we do good enough, then God's going to like us. And if we do more good than evil, he's going to like us more gooder. You know? Hello. 
And so... Okay. <laughs> Sometimes we have an enemy using cell phones. <laughs> I don't think God wants us to hear this today. But so... We want a set of rules, and we want to be told what to do, or what not to do. We want this nice to-do list. And if we have this to-do list, we can impress God by doing good. We can be happy with ourselves, and, and we have our system control, and we're proud. And if we're good... We can even judge those who aren't as good as we are because they're, you know, obviously if they don't do as good as us, then they just don't have it like we do. And so we can judge them. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day, you know, they were, they were the religious elite. They were who everyone looked up to. I mean, they followed the rules. I remember reading about one sect of Pharisees. They were called the bruised and the bleeding. Now this is a true story. I'm not making this up, honest. They were called the bruised and the bleeding. And it was, they called them that because as they would be walking down the street and if they saw a woman approaching, then so they would not have an immoral thought or any kind of lust in their eyes, they would immediately close their eyes. Now the problem with them was they didn't always immediately stop walking. <laughs> and so many times they would run into posts and sides of buildings and thus they were kind of nicknamed the sect of the bruised and bleeding. Because they followed their rules to the every dot and thistle. And so they were the elite. But all of a sudden here comes Jesus and he just begins to totally wreck their whole system. He even started hanging out with sinners. I mean, imagine that. The God of this universe in the flesh, and he's hanging out with sinners. It reminds me a few years ago, I've, I've done a lot of weddings, and, and uh, I will have to say last year was my favorite wedding because I got to officiate my daughters. But other than that, probably my favorite wedding happened several years ago. And it was a... It was a Harley wedding. It was set in a encampment. I don't know how else to describe it, but it was a it was a gathering of a lot of Harley riders. I don't think they even let him buy a Honda in, but you know, <laughs> so they weren't all bad. No, <laughs> and uh, a couple had come to me. They were Christians. Um, they had. Um, a woman minister they felt was would be pretty uncomfortable in that situation so I said sure and so we I hopped on my Harley and I when I ride and especially when it's cooler I have my black leather jacket and on the back of it is this huge cross and it has Jesus is Lord and I love wearing that and so I it was outside of Attica and I pulled up and I pulled into where I thought I was supposed to be, and there's a woman there waiting on me, so she could show me the way, and she got on the back of my Harley, and as we came down a hollow and up a hill, to me it was kind of like what it must have been like to come into a Civil War encampment, only instead of horses, it was Harleys. 
you know. And I mean, because just out in the middle of nowhere, and it had all these tents and campfires and Harley's part, and, and then they had the stage up, and, and, uh, and, and this woman was, as we were going through, she was, this is the preacher, this is the preacher, you know? <laughs> and and uh, so I think she was a little surprised, I don't know. But, but the thing was, and then as the procession, we all came in on our Harleys, and the bride came in side saddle, and, and uh, but what was really neat to me is, and, and I'm not saying the whole thing was darkness, because obviously there, I think there were some Christians there, but, but I really honestly believe that the light of Jesus came to that gathering that day. And so that was the reason I really agreed to do it. But I had, I, I received some flack about that from some friends of mine that, that just thought that was horrible that I did a wedding in the midst of all this darkness. And, but you see, but the grace of God was I. And so, And watching this. Now, Tolian will say, he says, he doesn't agree with anything this book says. And he thinks that, you know, that it's totally off-center. But it was his heart, his own heart, the Lord showed him in this. And that's why I'm not even going to mention who the author was. Because what I want you to see, that it's our hearts that we have to guard against. And he became so proud. And that was so much like the, the Pharisees were. And so Tolly felt, well, surely he's so much better than this and pastor. And so I know in my own life, so many times in the church, I've
kneading clay. He was working on the Sabbath. And he knew they were watching him. And so what happens, I'm not going to go through all of uh, chapter 9 of John, but the whole chapter is where the Pharisees call this man in. They begin to investigate him. They said, you can't be that man that's out there. He goes, I'm him, I'm him, you know. <laughs> he says, well, what happened? Goes, I don't know. He just healed me. He said, he did this and that, and I'm healed. And so then they call in his parents, started investigating them, and, and they all said, well, we don't know. And, and But the whole thing was, was that, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And it drove the Pharisees nuts. And so instead of rejoicing, instead of rejoicing with this, with this, this man whose hand was healed, or rejoicing with this, this man who had been born blind, the Pharisees were so angry they wanted to question and disapprove everything because that was they had a law-based spirituality and that's what it does to us and in the same thing today if our spirituality is based on the law we become just like the Pharisees and we want to judge everyone around us and we want to be, we'll become critical. We'll be cold-hearted to each other. In the body of Christ today, so many times we want to shoot our wounded because of this same spirit that is still in the church today. It's this whole spirit of judgmentalness because we think we're good. And we're not. Because God's grace doesn't depend on our goodness. And so Jesus, in this case, he didn't break the law by healing. He was actually fulfilling it. Because the law in itself was made to restore us. The Sabbath was made to restore us. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was restoring this man's hand. He was restoring the, the sight to this man's eyes. And the Sabbath is to, after a week's work, is to restore us so we can gain our energy. I guarantee you this afternoon I'm going to go home and take my nap to get restored. After the Colts game. But that's what the Sabbath was made for. And then in, in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so grace will confront every system we build that wants to contain it. And so we want to have good standing with God. Desires of our hearts are to be righteous, but we pursue it by being good or trying to be good. And we want to proclaim God's grace. But then we go about, after we proclaim it, then we go about trying to earn it. Now I might be preaching to the walls. I might be just me that does that. But I remember before I really seriously looked at this, this whole series that I'm doing now. If you'd have asked me two months ago how I understood grace on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd have told you a 9. Because I understand grace. I understand I did nothing to deserve it. Today, if you ask me, I'll say 2. I, I know about this much about grace. And I want to know more and more and more. 
Because grace is so much just simply depending on God. And we'll lose control of our lives if we simply depend on God. We so many times we want a to-do list so we can be told what to do. And then that way, if we do the right things, we can check them off one at a time. One at a time. Oh, I did this good. Check that one off. And so we have control over our lives. But Jesus did not die on the cross for us to have control over our lives. He died to set us free. And one thing that I hope that when we finish this series on grace, I hope we can look back and that you won't see that I'm trying to tell anyone what to do or what not to do. Because that's not my purpose in this. I don't want to tell anyone what to do. But my purpose and I hope is to realize that Jesus has actually done it all. That's the whole purpose of this. is not to, to have this list to do this and to do that, but to realize that he's done it. He's done it. He's done it all. And, and every, every 16 weeks I, I teach out at Trinity Mission and there's a new group of guys that come in every 16 weeks. And, and at the end of this month I'll have 27 years being free from alcohol and drug addiction. And, and, and so when I talk to them and these guys are just coming out of that, I feel like I have something I can share with them. I have something to say because God has freed me from that. And I'll look at them and, and not being a smart aleck. Because you could think of that, I guess, maybe. But so many times, I will look at them and I'll say, Guys, you want to know a guaranteed way to make sure you never drink again? Or you never use again? And they'll look at me and they'll go, Yeah. They want to know that because they usually tried 150 times to quit. I did. And so I'll look at them and i say, If you never want to drink again, don't take that first drink. And they'll look at me like, oh. <laughs> and But I say, but you can't do that without the strength of Jesus in your life. And I say, what you need to do is give your hearts to Jesus and follow your hearts. I don't give them a to-do list. I don't say you got to do this and that. But I, I try to point them to Jesus who will give them the strength not to take that next drink or not to, not to use again. And so, what we have to do is surrender our hearts. And so the whole purpose, I believe, of preaching the gospel is to point us to Christ. To encourage us to give our hearts away. To get us, it's not to get us to follow a set of rules. This, this was, again, I can... phone? You think it's me? It usually is. <laughs> See, that's why I don't want to point my fingers at anybody. It's always me. 
Leanne tells me that every day. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean that at all. <laughs> so, preaching the gospel is not to get us to do this or not to do this. And, and in all honesty, if you're ever in a place that does that, run as quick as you can. Because there's places like that that want to control your lives and tell you exactly what to do and what you can't do and exactly what part of your income you better put in that box and, and do all these things. And if you do this, then maybe you'll be good enough to get in. But you see, it's not about that. And so this, this past Saturday, I get a, I get a thing from Tolene, because I really like this guy. I really think he's, he's one of my, my favorite teachers right now. But I get a, a, a list of teachings from him. And on Saturday, there's this quote that he said, The gospel doesn't just free you from what others think about you. It frees you from what you think it, about yourself. I'm going to say it again. I was stuttering a little. The gospel doesn't just free you from what others think about you. It frees you from what you think about yourself. Amen. And so my goal in this whole series of messages about this amazing grace that God has given us is to point us to Jesus and to show us that he's already done it all. He's done it all. And that all of scriptures points to that. All of scripture points to this amazing grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ. And it shows us that he's already done it. And that what we need are not our hearts to be changed, but he gives us this exchange and he actually gives us a new heart. And he doesn't want us to keep reviving that old one. And so I believe myself, the focus on Sunday morning is the first thing is the giving praise and giving thanks. And, and I really feel that's what our worship should be, is to come together as a group and to be able to, to say, God, thank you for all you've done in my life. And like, Susie, we could have left this morning. Susie already preached this message this morning. That in all circumstances, God is in control. And God loves us in the midst of it. And that's what it's about. And so I honestly feel that when we gather in the mornings, that, that collectively it's such a beautiful thing to give thanks together. And to have gratitude flowing from our hearts to praise Him. And then I think the next thing that is important on Sunday morning then is to look more towards Him in the Word. Because His Word points to Him. And so our lives will change not by doing more good, but seeing the grace of God and what Jesus has already done. It's no longer a to-do list, but realize it is finished. It is finished. Galatians 5, 7, 5, chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. 
Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will not be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. None of our works has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in to keep you from obeying the truth? In other words, grace in itself is not opposed to obedience. Again, I want to remind you all, and I want to keep reminding you, I'm not trying to say it's bad to be good. Because it's good to be good. If you're bad, you will reap the consequences of being bad. So, I'm not saying, don't be good. It has to do with our heart motives. But we have to understand that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so, when we add rules to grace, it's hurting our obedience, not helping it. And so here, Paul is saying, you were running such a good race. You understood God's mercy and grace in your life, and all of a sudden, you're, you're fighting over these laws, and, and whether you should be, you know, be a good Jew and be circumcised or not. And he's saying, it doesn't matter. What matters is your faith expressing itself through love. You were running such a good race. Who kept you from obeying this truth? It was the law that was. It was the trying to please God that was keeping them from understanding His grace. Does that make sense? And, and what happens here, and again, I talked about this a lot last week, but that gratitude is no basis for receiving grace. We don't have to be grateful to receive grace, but if we truly understand that we've received it, we'll be overwhelmingly grateful. And our lives will start to reflect that. But if we're trying to work our way in, there's nothing to be grateful about, because if you're like me, you're going to blow it. And you'll realize you can't do it. You can't be good enough. And so what motivates us? Is it fear or guilt? Or is it love? from being set free. We can only truly obey, I believe, through gratitude, not fear. I had years and years ago, I had a good friend that was, was one of my religious friends. I had a few. And I wasn't a good influence on him. And uh, I remember we were in high school and then one night he had had too much to drink. And uh, actually, it was the first time he ever drank. And I, I never will forget this, because it didn't change the way I thought at the moment, but I always kept it at the back, back of my mind. And, and uh, now I see the significance of it. But I remember he was intoxicated, and uh, he was upset. And I can remember him, him realizing that he had kind of blown it, and he put his head on the table, and he goes, Oh... If Harold could see me now. Harold was his dad. 
And the thing that was, was, was John wasn't afraid of his dad being upset with him or beating him for being drunk. He was afraid of disappointing him. And I didn't understand that at that time. But I understand it now because I really believe that's what the fear of God's about. It's not that we walk around in fear that if we mess up, He's going to zap us. Or we do something wrong, He's going he's to punish us. But I think the fear of God has a lot to do with this fear of disappointing Him. Amen. And if, if, our, if, our, if our lives are motivated by that kind of fear... If our lives are motivated by wanting to please Him from the love that flows from our heart, from the gratitude of what He's done, realizing that we didn't deserve our salvation, but He gave it to us as a free gift, and we realize that, and the gratitude that flows from our hearts back to that, that is what gives us the strength to do good. And when we're facing a situation... That is where we can put our head on the table and say, I don't want to disappoint Dad. And that's the difference that can be in our lives. The second part of this, I'll do more quickly, but it's graves, grieves our slavery. So we go back to, to Mark chapter 3 and verse 5. And he said, he looked around at them, at the Pharisees, in anger. And he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. You see, Jesus was angry. And so what we see is, and what we need to understand, that, that grace doesn't depend on relativism, which is basically, there's no right or wrong, everything's okay, you're okay, I'm okay. You know, that's not grace. Grace doesn't mean that anything goes. But Jesus was expressing anger at the hardened hearts of the Pharisees. It was their lack of grace. You see, again, the Pharisees did not care about the man with the withered hand. They had no caring about him at all. They only wanted to trap Jesus. And a lot of times in our life, what makes us mad is when we feel someone's getting away with something, getting too much grace. Those things can really tick us off. Does me a lot of times. But Jesus' heart was that what made him angry was there was too little grace. And so the Pharisees were angry at Jesus for giving too much grace. But he was so angry at them for too little. And there's a huge, huge difference between anger that is self-centered or law-induced or out of gracelessness and anger that causes grief in our hearts. Jesus' anger was out of grief. So many times what we have to guard against, because I'll be honest with you, most of my anger is out of my own self-righteousness. And a lot of times, my anger is a lot towards those who I think are self-righteous. Because I'm certainly not self-righteous, and they are. So that makes me mad. <laughs> you know? But what happens, we become just like the Pharisees, 
who are so pharisaical and, and we become so we can be so full of love and grace and yet so much like a Pharisee that we believe are like Pharisees probably none of you has ever done that but nothing makes me madder than a Pharisee and what happens then so many times when we start to judge that when we judge we look down on them and so we want to say I get it but you don't I'm better than you are and every time we judge that's exactly what we do when we judge someone else we're saying I got it right you don't you're lowly I'm high I'm elevated and so then we judge I think it's interesting that scriptures tells us so many times well scriptures tells us that day and night the accuser of the brethren Satan is is accusing us before God day and night now it's interesting because Satan really doesn't have access to the Holy of Holies you know who does we do we have access to the Holy of Holies so who is Satan using then to accuse one another it's us through our judgments through our gossips through, through, the un through the, all the conditions we put on each other we're constantly accusing and judging one another and so Jesus anger was so marked by grief and tears and what he saw when he looked at him what grieved Jesus wasn't it wasn't that they were I don't I mean that was grieving him but I really believe what was really grieving Jesus was he saw the slavery they had put himself themselves into because the law was set to make us see we're lawbreakers and to set us free and they were trying to fulfill the law and they were in their own slavery and what that slavery had produced it had produced cold insensitive hard-hearted arrogant men and even today I believe in the church that cold love is so rampant amongst us where so many times the church itself is so at each other's throats and the world can only see Jesus by the way we love one another and the world looks on and sees us fussing and fighting all the time and what do they see and that's what grieves what was grieving Jesus here because the people were looking to these men to be religious examples and they were example of everything that slavery brought about and so these Pharisees were judgmental and they were living in a prison that they were making themselves and Jesus looked at them and he was grieved but he came to set us free so that we don't have to continue to enslave ourselves gracelessness should make us angry we should get angry at the right things but our anger should break our hearts with grief for those who are trapped in their own self-righteousness our anger should never be because of our own self-righteousness 
because it's their system that leads to slavery. It's that law-based spirituality that makes us proud and judgmental and, and that, that if we can do it, then we can judge those who can. Or if we can't do it, then we walk around and we'll feel guilty and ashamed and we'll feel this weight of the world on us. You know how it is when we blow it. When we do something stupid and you feel like you're about that tall and you think you're probably the only Christian that ever thought that way or, and, and you, don't even, you don't even want to tell anybody what you're thinking. You ever do that? So we're either so many times enslaved by our pride or our despair. But only truly understanding God's grace in our life will set us free. And that we didn't do anything to deserve it. In John 6, 29 you don't need to turn there, but the people asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Do you believe that today? That's our work. To believe in Him. To believe. Luke 10, 20. I'm going to end. This will be my last scripture. The 72 returned with joy. They'd been sent out by Jesus. And said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in our names. Wouldn't that be cool? Just be walking around and says... You can get out of him. Boom, it's out. You know, be healed and they're healed and all in the name of Jesus. Wouldn't that feel good? I think it'd feel good. And they were excited with that. And they were doing it in the name of Jesus. But he replied to him because I think he could see that pride welling up in him. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That should make us jump up and down and shout and say, Hallelujah! Our names are written down in heaven. Believe. Believe it is finished. So grace is not based on what we can do for God, but what He has done for us. There are no conditions. No conditions. And, and I think about this some, and, and I was thinking about this this morning because, you know, when, when I talk about addictions and, and, and different things, a lot of you can't relate to that, and that's good. There's some in here that know exactly what I'm talking about and different things, but, you know, a lot, most of the people in here are good folks and didn't do those stupid things in your life. And, 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 and you know, probably 99% of the people here have never cheated on their spouse. Many of you have never been drunk. You've never done these stupid things, and that's so good because you never had to reap from that. And that's not a slam at all. That's good. But the thing of it is that we have to understand is that, for me, 
27 years ago when the Lord started finally freeing me from all this stuff in my life, that was the easy part because what happened next was I had to deal with me. I had to go down into the roots because see, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the addictions that was destroying me, it was the self-centeredness. It was the pride. It was, it was what comes out of the tongue. It was the judgmentalness in our lives. And you see, as Christians, at so many times we can think that, I'm good, I don't do these stupid things. But the problem is, is that inherently we're not good. Because if you're like me, most of the time you think more of yourself than anyone else. Don't plan it that way. And Philippians, Philippians 2 says, if we could consider the needs of others more important than ourselves. Think of that. Think of that in a marriage. If I could always consider Leanne's needs above my own. But what I want to think about is if she would consider my needs above her own. You know. Wow, that would be great. But the thing is, you see, if, we could, if I could actually, if you have a marriage doing that. Wow. If you have a family that does. Think about a church. Think about a church that actually thought about the needs of others more than themselves. Couldn't that be powerful? You know, I think that could be so powerful, the world could look on and say, what do they have that we don't? They honestly love each other. Because the whole key to Christianity is loving others more than ourselves. Loving God more than ourselves. And there's not a condition to that. It comes from the gratitude of the heart. No conditions. I remember several years ago, I was reading a book by Watchman Nee, and I don't remember which one because I read several. He was... And he talked about one day there was a man by the river and someone was drowning and this man kept waiting and waiting and the person drowning kept going under more and more and more and there's someone watching from the distance and then finally finally this man jumped in went swimming over the guy was almost lifeless all the fight was out of him. He was almost dead. And, and this man pulled him up, brought him out of the water, resuscitated him, and the man came back to life. And then this, this other man who had been watching came over and said to him, says, you know, in my whole life, I have never seen someone who loved their life more than you do. You almost let that man completely drown before you saved him. But he looked at him and he says, you don't understand. He would have drowned me if I'd gone in at that time. Because he was still struggling to fight for every breath. He was still struggling everything within him to live. And if I had gone in there, he would have taken us both under. I had to wait until he finally let go and gave up. And, and then, when he finally stopped struggling, then I could go in and rescue him. Once the panic... Was, you, ever, you ever been in that where maybe somebody's held you underwater too long or something or, and uh, 
and you just that panic sets in. But you see, God wants to do that to us. He wants us to drown in His ocean of unconditional grace. We'll try to struggle. We'll try to do everything we can to save ourselves. But God wants to kill us. He wants to drown us. And so my suggestion is let go. Let go. He wants to drown us so we can live. And so we can live more abundantly. Jesus fulfilled every condition of our salvation. But it's only by trusting in Him and His finished work we approach Him unconditionally. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus perfect fulfilled, perfectly fulfilled all of God's holy requirements. So our relationship can be based on His grace and not on what we do. So honestly today, Danny you want to come on up? But honestly today, if you're here and you've never surrendered to Him, I just have a prayer for you. I pray that you let go and drown. And if you're here today and you do know Him, my prayer is the same thing. Let go and drown. Let's all drown this morning. So we can truly see the price Jesus paid to set us free. And that we can live in His grace. Let's pray. Lord, again, we just thank You for Your Word.